This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Place Into Being, a collection of Robert Pasadak's amazing comics art edited by Nicholas Burns and available through At Bay Press online and everywhere at finer comic and bookstores. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We're here with a very special guest, Nick Burns, to talk about comics today. And though you can't see the geographic distance between us and Justin... Say hello, Justin. Do I sound far away? Well, in our hearts, Justin is on the other side of the studio right now at his computer, feverishly working on spaceships. Do you want to tell our dear listeners why that's true? (laughs) Uh, Because it was a long weekend in Canada this weekend, and I actually took a couple days and, like, did normal weekend things. Wait, you you took actual time off? Yeah, it was weird. I (gasps) hung out with friends and did, like, normal weekendy things and didn't sit at my computer the whole time when so was the last time that happened it's been a while yeah. I, I had a bit of a panic attack but i did it so now nick you've had a longer history with illustration and comics how does this what what justin's doing right now which is basically just chasing the deadline in the middle of doing another thing seem normal to you or oh, i'm uh, i'm having the flop sweat over <laughs> here uh, just watching him <laughs> i remember it well so you have a long history with comics. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background for the oh, dear listeners? man, where do I start? Uh, well, like most uh, people my age, I grew up reading comics, uh, tons and tons of comics, as many comics as I get my hands on. Ditto for science fiction paperbacks, uh, detective paperbacks. I was a voracious reader, precocious uh, reader, and uh, started drawing at age three. And um, so my parents encouraged that, and uh, it seemed like a natural... Uh, thing to move into to grow up and write and draw comics for a living now different than a lot of people i've found anyway sort of specialize in one thing in comics but when i look at your list here i see writer penciler inker colorist letterer editor cover artist yep you just say yep like yeah no big deal well i started out as a colorist uh george freeman i that's sort of the magic uh key to how I ended up in the biz. Uh, met George Freeman as a teenager, junior high, early high school. And it, was it you telling me about this building also? Oh yeah, that's, but that's 20, 25 years afterwards. Whoa. In 72, 73, somewhere around there, Captain Canuck was being produced out of Winnipeg. And I uh, managed to wangle an invitation to go and see the CKR headquarters in Winnipeg. I went out there and I met this guy named George Freeman, who, surprise, surprise, was... Uh, few years older than me but drew better than anybody I'd ever seen right you know I mean and best of all he wanted to be friends so when CKR folded for a while he moved back into Selkirk where I grew up uh, where Nigan Sinclair grew up you yeah. know it's the Selkirk crowd it's like the hotbed of yeah uh, yeah yeah where I was born oh no there Dan. we go see see now the it's all it's, the, it's the, the Selkirk uh, mafia right here oh my gosh Anyway, um, so yeah, and George uh, wanted to be friends, wanted to have somebody to talk comics with, and I basically apprenticed under him. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. I was just hanging out, cleaning up pencils uh, after he'd inked them, you know, uh, erasing original art right in front of me. It was the best education I could ever get. Oh my God, I have such uh, envy for the idea 
of apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, can you imagine a teenage boy going over to another man's house now? Yeah. I mean, verboten, whoop, whoop, you know? Yeah, to draw pictures. We're just drawing pictures. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But back then, it was completely acceptable, and, you know, my parents knew the guy and had met him, and, yeah, it was fine. All, well, it was but all good. we were we were also closer in that generation to the idea of apprenticeship. Sure. Right? Yeah. You know, people uh, be- took over their right. parents' businesses. That was a normal thing. Well, so. and before the internet, how did you learn anything? Yeah. You know? From people. Now there's yeah. literally bookshelves full of books on how to write and draw comics, and yeah. the internet is full of how-to's as well. Yeah. But back in the '70s, no such thing. You had to either go to the Kubert School, which I couldn't afford to do. It had just started up, and I mean just. And or you found somebody that would take you on in the position George did. It wasn't a formal thing, right? But I, it's where I learned everything. He taught me everything. And that's kind of the key to an apprenticeship as a concept is that it's not formal. It's like people who keep showing up, yeah, take a little bit of shit and yeah, abuse, yeah, yeah. and then well, learn something yeah. and grow as a result. Yeah, and so I've paid it forward. I mean, yeah. there's kids out there that you see them at cons, you see them, you meet them at uh, work at other jobs, whatever, and you pay it forward. So yeah. it's like. Go ahead. What do you want to know, kid? And that's what the, basically George answered my questions. I'll answer yours. I'll answer anybody's. So I, um, I think I first, it must have been at a local show when I first like discovered the Nick Burns, ha! right? And saw someone who uh, had been doing comics here locally. And then when we spoke a little bit, had this wealth of knowledge, not just of like the craft itself, but of the history that Winnipeg had in the comic scene, which to me was, you know, at that time so fascinating to be someone who's like, I'm going to do this here and no one is really doing this here. And then to realize, oh, people have been doing this here forever. Yeah. Right. You yeah. just don't know them. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Well, we're a pretty, I mean, we don't get together like we used to. You know? Yeah. We all sort of have other lives. And so, yeah, we used to meet regularly, though. And the comic shop was sort of where you would run into people, right? And they don't really, I mean, there's a few left, but yeah. they're not the sort of gathering places they used to be. Right. So, you know, when Doug Salipa had his shop, uh, well, the first one on Cumberland, later on Portage Avenue, you know, people would come to you. You'd get together there. You'd run into people. You'd make a point of meeting them. My observation now is that the gaming stores are the comic shops of my mm. younger days. Yeah, yeah. Right? Those are the places people are going and gathering yep. and hanging yeah. out and doing that. And... Uh, uh, free business idea to anybody out there. I feel like the person that combines the comic store pull list with their gaming store is going to find a really healthy revenue stream there. You're, you're yeah. speaking about Comic World, of course. Yeah. Uh, that the comic shop that I used to go to as a kid. And and fun fact, I actually bought a video. I bought video games there all the time, but I do remember specifically buying a Star Wars game for the Atari back oh, in the day. Wow. But he sold. He did sell video yeah. games there as well. He sold all kinds of stuff there. Oh, so yeah, that was yeah. that was what that was. Yeah, I mean, again, because the video game thing came on, you know, after sort of I'd gotten through my teen years, it didn't have the same impact on me as it had to you. But yeah, and, you know, Doug and his mom, I think his mom still was selling video games and stuff the last time I saw her at a flea market. So, uh, yeah. Uh, But back then it was, uh, what I remember is nothing but comics. No games, no toys, none of the stuff you see now that stores have to get in because... Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to pay for your, as a retailer, you've got to pay for your square footage. That's right, right yeah. And retail is pr- 
prices have gone up, you know, to buy to rent space. Yeah. So now you got to earn more per square foot. Yeah. You don't have room for the water cooler. You don't yeah. have room for well, the. Well, this again, machine. this is why I say that you don't that want people sticking around. If you if look you're not at going to buy something, game stores like Game Night here or uh, Amusing Games, right, or the two bigger ones here that have gaming spaces where what they're basically doing is saying stay all day if you mm -hmm. want. Yeah. That square footage. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're paying out of people's interest in then buying a product afterwards. Well, now if you're staying all day and you have a comics rack there, to me that feels like a great. Yeah, the analogy that I draw is to uh, is to get computer games and the little get-togethers and or large get-togethers. Yeah, like land parties. That's the right. Day. That yeah. they have here in the city, and yeah. they're making a conscious effort to bring people together with an interest. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of thing that happened informally at yeah. this comic shops when I was a kid. It's almost like I would say that. Um, you know, I think doesn't Doug sell comics online now? Oh yeah, no. So, I mean, so like most large, you know, retailers, they realized that they it was foolish to be, you know, spending all this money on commercial space on Portage Avenue when you could rent a uh, warehouse for a fraction of the price out in the country and do all your uh, business online. And that's another part of the problem is that the comic book stores have gone online, so. Right. The space, part of that community. the actual space is gone. Yep. But I think that what you guys are talking about with these other gaming stores is, is kind of a re return to that, right? That is yeah. happening where more and more people are gathering. The tabletop is becoming this yes. unifying force again. Well, and again, because young people need some place to socialize yeah. in in a like person to person, like yeah. we're doing right now. Yeah. You know that uh, the internet doesn't provide that level of satisfaction, that level of interplay. At a remote lake. What was that? Something in the water. Check it out, an otter. He's about to make waves. We were talking before we went on air about how pointless it is to argue with anyone uh, about anything that, online. That's right. I mean, but you and I could get really get into it here. Yeah. And there's, you know, so the social conventions of interpersonal action, person to person, are very different. Than Change the dynamics the of an argument. Yeah. Right, online. I've, I've been talking to my kids about this, sure. and my wife and I have been having this conversation about how you have to be careful uh, putting your opinion just as it is online because... You know, like I would use an example like, you know, you and your buddy got into it when he was over here visiting, right? But he had already come over to your house. You had already hung out for an hour and a half. And then you had an argument. And then afterwards, you had to face each other, talk it through, come back around, and now you're still friends. Exactly. But online, you just come in for the argument, you leave, and you all you've left with is, oh, you came only with the anger, and you leave only with the anger, right? And yep. how dangerous that can be. Yeah, very dangerous. Um, the oh. idea of uh, civil discourse is basically evaporating before our very eyes. Right. Uh, it's true of other media as well, where if it bleeds, it leads. So on yeah. so-called debate programs, this is now for decades, people basically sit there and yell at one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and should maybe maybe to increase hate, Justin? Maybe to increase <laughs> our listeners, we should attack the guests. What do you think? A little more controversy on the More show? controversy. Yeah. Well, I'll just put on my big Mad Dog Vachon yeah. suit here. Well, I've actually made it a conscious effort, I think, to lay ground rules that we won't trash anybody else's work on the show. That sounds like a that's, healthy that's idea. Your, that's your thing, <laughs> by the way. We, we, right. Justin and I feel free to, to talk about movies we don't like all the time. I know, but when we're talking about somebody else's artistic endeavor, well, unless who it's isn't Lake Placid, here to defend and then you're just... Unless, unless yeah, it's what, Lake, Lake Placid. Lake Placid is different oh, because it's, it's not, you know, really a film. Uh, don't mention the war. 
Oh my God. Okay, so we we just we just turned left into film anyway, so we might as well go there. You spend a lot of time making comics and doing comics. Yes. But you also spend a lot of time uh, doing something that a lot of people confuse with comics and think is a one-to-one comparison with comics, which is called storyboarding. Right. Do you want to um, wax poetically yeah, about yeah, the I've, difference? I've had this, as I mentioned uh, before we went on air, I've had this discussion with people before. To me, storyboards are like blueprints. They're essentially what you're giving to the crew uh, so that they know what the director's vision is and can respond accordingly. They can be there with the right props, be there with the right uh, special effects, etc., etc. So uh, storyboards are blueprints. Comics are the house itself. Oh, there well, is no... Yeah other art product that comes from the comic it's it's the pro it's the final product it's the final product so that's a huge difference right but people tend to think of yes. an, an illustration as being a finished product sure. and superficially i can see why people make that confuse the two right. but if you look at decent set of storyboards for live action or even animation i guess uh, although there are differences i mean You'll see storyboards have huge arrows on them. Yeah, to Justin was just the pointing action. fervently at our yeah. Ginger Snap storyboards we yeah. have up on the wall here. I right? have a like, limited edition right. nice Ginger boards. Snap storyboard poster. Yeah. And that? also you'll have indications of camera movement. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Yeah, None of which you have in comics. The little letter, yeah, letters and arrows that, you know, for panning over and camera movements and stuff right. like that. Once you Once you understand what they are, it's... It really yeah. paints a picture when you're reading. So them. it's a it's a slightly different vocabulary in quotation marks, and uh, it's certainly a different uh, finished product. So how did you get from one to the other? Ah, well, great question. George again, George Freeman always said when he was teaching me about comics, these are transferable skills. The guy was prescient. So once I knew how to tell a story in pictures, I was actually useful in the film industry because surprise, surprise, a lot of people who work in film aren't visually literate in the way comic artists are. Right. And the other advantage I had was I went to uh, art school uh, with John Pace. I joined the Winnipeg Film Group, which is a film cooperative here in Winnipeg of uh, wide renown. Guy Madden comes from out of there, as do other uh, other create independent uh, filmmakers. So because I could tell a story in picture, even when I took the basic workshop to understand how cameras worked and understand how lighting works and understanding how sound works, um, I could already tell a story in pictures. My first film actually has a beginning, a middle, and an end, a, a story you can follow from right. shot to shot. Which is rare for first Well, it was so rare filmmakers. that my, the, uh, the prof, the teacher, kept it. <laughs> it was, uh, there was a type of film stock back then uh, 16 mil film stock that uh, you processed it and that became there was no negative that became the actual f- film that you ran to show on the news at uh, night or whatever right again this is the uh, late 70s right a very different technology uh, but what it meant was that when I was started doing storyboarding first for independent films through the film group and then for music videos when they became a thing here and elsewhere uh, you get funding for music videos so I was storyboarding those in the 80s uh, early 80s, and then um, you know the film industry springs up. The actual f- real industry here, Hollywood North, unionized, uh, you know, 
And uh, I was, I had the right combination of skills. I knew how movies were made from having worked on film sets, schlepping ca camera gear, lighting, you know, I know what a C-stand is, a half apple, right. you know, all of those things. And I, and I knew how to tell a story in pictures. Right. So unlike a lot of storyboard artists who have no clue how movies get made, well, again, it's I'm the, helping them get in their day, as they say. In and the what you're describing, again, is another apprenticeship. Another uh, unstated of, of apprenticeship, right? Yeah, like you knew sort. enough about the way that the, the yeah, yeah, that's studio true. worked that you yeah. fit in. Although that's in this case, it was more of a deliberate, um, a conscious right. uh, thing in terms of joining the film group, making movies, working with other people. It's a cooperative, right. right? Which, again, is an unusual idea, but a very Canadian idea. If I work on your film, yeah. you'll work, you'll on, work on my film. film. Yeah. And that's how movies yeah. got made yeah. when they were really hard to make. Give and take. Uh, that just uh, makes me think of, we always recommend to illustrators to get into a bit of graphic design because we know so many illustrators that are amazing illustrators, but it w when it comes to printing their work or doing anything with print production, they have no idea what's going on, and it's a huge skill set um, that I think is, is yeah, lacking. Yeah. They don't um, know that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So and I would echo that because, again, I'm giving uh, my formal education short shrift, but junior high... I learned how to typeset by hand, right. the old-fashioned way. Uh, yeah, and I knew, and I learned how to so do good, silk screen. Yeah. <laughs> we have it so good, Justin. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I learned drafting, and I had a good commercial art teacher in high school, Bill Gamble, who taught us, don't just draw, learn how to draw one way. Learn how to be analytical so you can draw different ways, because if the one way you have of drawing goes out of fashion, right. you're out of work as a commercial artist. Right, yeah. And that's invaluable, right? Yeah. So I can draw representationally. I can draw expressionistically. I can draw, you know, like, anyway, you get the idea. Yeah. I can draw in a bunch of different styles. And but have been paid quite nicely to do so. But then eventually, don't you want a distinct style that people seek you well, out specifically for? these are the for? sort of hard to choices that you have to make, right? Yeah. Every business book I've read about being an artist, professional artist, says, learn how to make sausages, and yeah. then squeeze out those sausages. <laughs> but by, well, so either by training or temperament, I could never do that. Right. I don't want to do that. I'll do one thing for a while. I get bored with it, frankly, and then I'll do something else. So interestingly here, because Justin doubles down on a style, a specific style, um, and you have more of a toolkit. Yeah, and there's no one right way to right, do this, right, right. as we've talked about. And both of you, but you both have the same reason for it. You, like, I've heard you both give the same answer as why you do it, and it's that I'll get bored otherwise, yeah. right? So you're switching up because yeah, you yeah. get bored, well, and he keeps that style, otherwise it would get boring. Sure, and, you know, there's merits to both. I mean, Justin has a great brand. People love it. They yeah. flock to his uh, table. I mean, this is all good stuff. If they, uh, on the other hand, if people are looking for uh, specific content, right. you know, and or I simply being paid by somebody to right. draw in a particular style, or a, I get a story in that they want me to adapt, and a particular style suits it. Not right. every style of story, you know, is going to work in shattered vector. Well, or it's funny you say that because I struggle with that with my own work. That certain things that I write, I can see in my own style. Oh, I'm going to illustrate this; going to be fun. And then other things, I just know I don't have. Like my style is absolutely wrong, yeah. and I don't have the, the chops, if you will, or the training to switch the style right. to make it suit it. Um, I can make kind of a 30-degree turn, 
like from super macabre to, yep. you yep. know, a little bit more friendly, but I can't do a complete... Yeah, and it takes a while to retool, right? Yeah. I mean, this is something uh, that I've done, I, I have to do, you know, when I'm given a job and they say we want it in this style or that style, or just to challenge myself, I say, I'm going to paint this in watercolor, yeah. which I've done. Welcome to Fells Island. Watch out for those lake monsters. You stop making the same mistakes over and over again after a while. You learn right. from your mistakes. And it's true in comics, and it's true in uh, storyboarding. And the great thing about doing comics, especially in earlier times when sh the short story was you know, part of the form, right. a bigger part of the form, is it allows you to do one of the two things that are going to make you successful. There's two things, right? You, to be successful in any endeavor, one, don't give up. Finish <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, finish know? it. Yeah. Don't give up and finish it maybe two by themselves, yeah. but... The other one is increase your failure rate. Fail upwards. Yeah. So I, I run into so many uh, young artists, young comics creators who want to do their magnum opus, their Star Wars, their whatever. And it's like, just do three pages. Yeah. Beginning, middle, middle end. end. This is what George taught me as well. In fact, we went into our old high school, our, because we went to the same high school just years apart, and did a, uh, basically a course on how to draw, write, and draw comics. I've been obsessed lately with this collection I have of Ditko, Steve Gick Ditko. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they collected a bunch of stuff he did for like old horror books mm -hmm. and sci-fi and suspense ones. Yeah. And that he did, what would happen is a comic would be short, one page, two pages, or three pages. Yep. And so they would just call him up the night before and say, we need a one-page story. Yep. We need a three-page story. Yep. We, we need a two-page story. I love when those were in old comic books. I love they, them. Yeah, they'd have but they short are stories at the a back. master class of beginning, middle, and end. Well, no sure. wasted time. And, and so you were asking about what are some of the basics. I mean, it sounds somewhat obvious, but learn to tell a story efficiently. Nick, I have a movie I want to make, mm. right? And I need you to do the do the storyboards for it. This has happened more than once. Right. Yeah, I know. I know it has. Um, uh, what is the thing that I need to give you? from my script. Like, I wrote a script. It's well, not quite finished. Yeah, first I'd ask to, to read the script. Right. And, I mean, often the scripts are terrible. These are, and I should <laughs> add, these are, these are often scripts that have been greenlit. Like, literally, right. millions and millions of dollars are behind these scripts yeah. that are either incomplete or there's problems with them or so on. Um, sometimes they're fixable, sometimes they're not. Sometimes I, they get fixed, sometimes they don't. As a brief aside, I'll say that I've seen this myself, this idea that uh, you've built this car, sort of, this is this film that's going to be coming, and money is the accelerator. Mm. But they have not built a car that can last the race, but if they keep pouring money into it, they just hope it'll be fast enough that once the wheels come off, there'll still be enough momentum to make it across the finish yeah, line. Yeah, that's, you're describing many films and or the filmmaking process in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I can't tell you the number of times when I've been given a script, and to be honest, I've been paid quite handsomely to rewrite scripts for TV movies and so on without credit because right. it violates union rules otherwise. But um, yeah, somebody has to save this turkey or at least make it producible. Right. So I've done that. And the same thing with storyboards. If you board in a way that makes it impossible to film on the budget you've got, then you're not helping. Yeah. Right? And the whole idea of being a storyboard artist is actually helping I can't stress this enough. Helping the crew get their day in. Right. Help the crew get their day in, which means you have X number of dollars, you have X number of days to shoot your film. Yeah. 
you have to somehow fit what you're shooting into those days. Yeah. It sounds and, sort of obvious. And but for the dear listener who doesn't have any experience with that kind of thing, imagine this, that every time a panel would switch position in a comic, that would be a camera that has to be taken down, moved to a new spot, a lighting rig that has to be adjusted, new sound has to be right. placed. So, so the you're guy doing would, a better job of explaining this right. than I am because that's a perfect example of how you board to get to help them get their day in. Yeah. You because I've worked in film, I know that if I move the camera over here, that takes them two, three hours to yeah. re, to remove it all, reset, relight. But if a so new on. character coming in, you just make a two shot. Well, they can just come in behind the first character and sure. nothing I mean, has to move. Or maybe you just move the camera up or down yeah. or in closer. I mean, there's yeah. a, there, again, there's an infinite number of ways of telling a story in pictures. And right? if you know the budget and the and the crew composition. Right. If you right. know that this camera is on an arm yep. for most of the day, yep. well, then we'll board around that sure. arm. How often do you adjust in that job? I, you know, I've never done storyboards on a film at your le- at that level. How often do you get brought in to solve a problem during th- that day of shooting? Does that happen? It really varies. I mean, some directors are meticulous in their planning, which is great. They give you a shot list. I've even had diagrams, sort of like dance steps, where right. everything's choreographed, if you will, um, in, you know, as if you're looking above and X character moves from point A to point B. Right. I've had those diagrams given to me by a director as well. All I have to do is draw it in three dimensions to give the crew an idea of the depth and so on, because if they're not familiar with these diagrams, they can't f- understand that any, any better than... Uh, than they would just the script itself. Right, yeah. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, I'll often uh, be called in to uh, help solve problems. Uh, It depends on the director, and it depends on the amount of money they have, and when I'm brought in. If you have lots of lead time, if you're brought in early enough in prep, then I can help them with some of that stuff with their permission. Right. Otherwise, my job is to be a wrist, to draw what they tell me. And again, different directors tell me what they want in different ways. Right. I've had directors who are actors, yeah. I'm not naming names, yeah. who <laughs> act, basically act out the entire scene that they want to see storyboarded. Right. I've had a director throttling a producer right before my mm, eyes, right. drawing a knife across their throat, demonstrating exactly <laughs> how somebody's to be killed or right. whatever. And the, so now in those respects, you're asked to capture and translate, yeah. essentially. Yeah. But if you're taking it from the from the printed page, that yep. must be very much like, and I think where a lot of the confusion in the one-to-one comparison comes from, because comics are usually you're given a script and then you interpret that script. So if you're given a script and you interpret it as a storyboard, right? Yeah, the difference is that in uh, comics, if the writer is writing for comics, they'll give you a better, a dis- some sort of hopefully possible, uh, able uh, a description that you're actually capable of translating into a into a drawing right but there are lots of bad comic scripts out yeah, there. yeah sure again there are the basic rules of how you write for comics just like there are the basic rules of how you screen write and often those rules are violated yeah <laughs> in the scripts yeah. that f- are for film and in the scripts that are written for making comics yeah and so sometimes it's, it's accidental genius and sometimes it's an intended break from the norm but more often than not i find it's expediency that has or left holes in it yeah i mean yeah. there's there again i can't stress this enough i i have to be honest and say i've read more bad scripts i i used to be the facilitator of uh, the screenwriting workshop for right. the film group for years after john kozak who now teaches at the university of winnipeg started it so 
again, I've read a lot of bad scripts, and they're all bad in the same ways is the fascinating thing. Why do you think that is? Why are there so many... Well, I want to say bad movies, but again, we're not going to, you know, trash anybody else. That's right. Movie. We're not here to rip down but people. It, it, it we're here to like build to you me, up. And this is kind of a wide-ranging, like, um, Hollywood in general. You know, there's so many bad movies out there that it feels like they're just trying to throw, see, throw something to the wall and see if it sticks. Don't you think, with all the money at stake, don't you think they'd be better at, at discovering good and, and p- producing good features at this point? Yeah, well, I could plead that that's above my pay grade. Right. Because I'm not a producer. I'm yeah. lo- no, very low seen, on the seen, totem you've pole. You've seen enough of these go through that, that you could probably rec- you recognize right away whether or not it's a good movie based on the script. Like, you know. The thing is, here's, like, the technology of making movies has gotten easier and easier to use, right? And there's more and more of them out there, and there's more and more markets. So there's a combination of things happening that result in the problem you're talking about. There's a greater demand for good work or for work period to fill airtime on all these various outlets that we've now got. Right. And there's um, also, it's never been easier to make a movie. You can make a movie in your basement. You yeah. can make a movie with your iPhone. Broadcast quality. The hard part is making any money at it. Yeah. So essentially it comes down to and who, it, it who does can happen. get somebody to commit X amount of dollars yeah. to getting this in the can, getting this out on the air. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the quality. If you guys are going to start talking about a giant squid, I'm out of here. You said anything about a giant squid? This comes back to another problem that I see all the time, which is a lot of people don't even understand the genre that they're working in. And you've had Jonathan Ball on here several times talking about genre and the meta, you know, the deeper levels of understanding that's required for genre. And without that, you're left with people who are writing based on what they've seen as kids or as adults even. Right. And they're mashing together the tropes, the cliches of the, the surface. Genre. Yeah, they're yeah just, the yeah. superficial elements yeah. without a deeper understanding of what they're actually doing. Like and all the uh, candy coatings, but none of the good stuff yeah, underneath. Yeah, that's yeah. what Scott McCloud talks about in yeah. Understanding Comics, yeah. right? There's this superficial understanding, and this is true for film as well as comics. Yeah. And then the, as you learn more about the, the genre, the medium that you're working in, you can dig into deeper and deeper levels of understanding, and you're capable of doing more. You can run a longer distance. You right. can say more profound things. I mean, genre in and of itself, people will watch. If it's a science fiction movie, it's one of the reasons genre was created, right? Mm-hmm. It's a category. Oh, sci-fi, what's on sci-fi? You watch anything, because it's on sci-fi, yeah. right? Oh, I'm guilty of that. Horror movie, yeah. oh, I love horror movies. I'll go to a horror movie, yeah. rom-com. Oh, I love rom-com. Yeah, yeah, but that's what I'm getting at, is that especially with horror films, it seems that um, they're cheap. To, we talked about this with, with jo- Jonathan Ball. It, they're cheap to make, and therefore easy to make money. Yeah, at, sure. And therefore they don't have to be great. No. Back in the '90s, I, w- I did a series of films that were shot here for RHI. At that time, I th- they were the biggest uh, producer of uh, TV movies in the world. And uh, every movie that we had, we had five of them to shoot here that summer. And uh, every one of them had made money before a single frame was shot because they'd sold it in Europe, they'd sold it in South America, they'd sold it in Asia. Right, the Horror markets, movies yeah. travel well because yeah. it's a basic premise, usually, that yeah. you can follow. If it's not too intellectual, if there's a monster out there, yeah. you know. This is the one with James Vanderbeek was in one of those? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Eye of the Beast. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. And uh, I remember, yeah, I remember seeing those. And yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, I mean, they're fun. But they're not like high-quality films. But say. people will watch them, yeah, Dan. Yeah. Again, you have to separate quality from 
the money that makes it all happen. Yeah, you brought up uh, this book. I've, uh, I've already forgotten the author, but I do remember the title, Aesthetic of Junk Fiction. Yeah, yeah, Thomas J. Roberts. Yeah, yeah. and that's what we're talking about. Like, this is a junk fiction, right? Like, yeah. it's, you're not, that's you know right. that it's just going to entertain right. you for 90 minutes. Right. And, and you probably and, won't change your life. And in terms of the psychology of those people that are wedded to... Um, genre fiction and when i when i say genre i mean horror sci-fi you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't mean literature that's separate but the, they we they they read or they watch broadly they'll watch everything they'll devour everything and anything that fits their right. their interest in a particular genre yeah the people who are reading literature you know the they're they're reading canonical tomes they're reading big thick dense books that are studied and written about and classes are given on Shakespeare, uh, Conrad, you know, a whole host of them that are, that fit, you know, highbrow as opposed to middlebrow or lowbrow culture. Do you think, well, okay, so then this comes down to the idea of, you know, we consume entertainment in all these different varieties, but what they really divide into is if you are a producer who your favorite movies were the ones that distracted you from your day, right? This is the junk fiction that you're going to want to do. And if you were someone whose life was changed by a significant work of art in film or literature, that might be what you're working towards. But the world consumes it all under the same umbrella. Sure. And so you have this disparate push-pull sure. between people who are like, oh, that's a terrible movie, and someone else loves it, i.e. Lake Placid, right? The, the great debate in our studio here, right? It's that depending on what you are after yeah. from that 90 minutes. Of course. Right? Yeah. And, of course, we've never had more choice, more options. You know, and, again, there's this question that I've talked with Dan about before, which is this whole idea of that uh, was, well, I first read about it in the, uh, in the 80s, but uh, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, right? And so then the question becomes, how much entertainment should we actually indulge in right you know, are we getting drunk on entertainment are we okay, so entertaining ourselves to the exclusion of our friends so our, our family, comics part of the our problem. culture our politics right but our comics are we just adding to the problem well this is it i mean i used to think when i started a book is this a waste of trees that's what i would right. ask myself is this a waste of trees right and if it wasn't i'd do it and you know educational comics the ones that i was doing when i lived in the arctic I mean, they served a specific function, you know. They encouraged people to uh, manage the uh, resources that were up there. They encouraged people to stay in school and get an education. They encouraged people to avoid sniffing solvents. And they said all these things in what I hope was an entertaining but still um, educational way of looking at, at life. Right. So when you got involved in the educational comics, was that something that like film you looked for and trained a little bit up into? Or? Yeah, yeah. It started out, I uh, worked, when I first got out of university, art school, I went to work in uh, the Department of Health Education Graphics when the provincial government had a Department of Health Ed Education Graphics. It was privatized because, hey, selling people on health education is no different than selling sneakers, right? Anyway, um, that's a different story. So... <laughs> um, yeah, so I, when I was doing the, this work in the Department of Health Education is when it really sort of struck me because I was being paid to do things like uh, uh, create a brochure for people with uh, limited uh, reading skills. They might have been immigrants. They might not have had a good education. At that point, I think uh, Canadians were functionally illiterate, one in five, something right. like that. I don't know what it is now. 
But in any case, uh, drawing pictures of, say, what a single mum needs uh, in terms of diapers and, uh, and soap and whatever to uh, be able to raise their child uh, safely and in a healthy manner could be communicated more simply and more clearly in pictures than in a whole ream of text that they may not read. Right. And uh, the interesting thing is, if done well, to me, uh, a pictorial set of instructions has the ability to seem less like a judgment from on high about exactly. what you're not able to do. That's right. And yeah. I, in fact, I wrote an article on that very subject for the, um, what do they call themselves, Manitoba Journal of Counseling, MJC. Uh, and it was, uh, the title of it was something along the lines of comics as uh, counseling by proxy. Right. And it's exactly what counseling you say. by proxy, that's interesting. Yeah, because concept, you're, yeah. You're, you, the consumer, are choosing to pick it up because it's a comic it's user friendly right and you read it and it's entertaining but at the same time it's providing you with information that it may be useful to you in yeah. your life and that's one of the foundations of what storytelling was created for right yeah this is i mean prior stories are a technology you know this is yeah, a, this they, is a big piece of mine technology. right now is that it's, it's the idea that uh stories are just an available technology that allow you to transmit a difficult cultural or social idea to another person and have them remember it. Key thing here is remember it, yes. but also understand yes. not just the concept, but your point of view about That's that right. concept. Yeah, and it also goes back to what Dan was asking earlier, because in our culture, as opposed to indigenous cultures, for instance, um, in our culture, we've turned stories into a commodity, yeah. right? So if you're telling a story simply to make money using the cliches of the genre, what are you actually giving someone, mm -hmm. the viewer or the consumer? Empty calories. Right. You know, left-handed sugar. Right. And uh, in indigenous culture, there's this term of story keeper. Well, right? stories in indigenous culture, and I wish yeah. Nigan was here because yeah. obviously, looking around, none of us are indigenous. Yeah. <laughs> but what I understand, and I could be wrong, in, uh, in the Inuit culture, stories are your history, they're your religion, they're your uh, hunting skills, they're... They're, they're, everything about your culture is conveyed through you observing what your elders are doing on the land, you know, or what you're told. Well, that's true. I think, you know, indigenous culture or otherwise, that's idea to codify a system into language. That's universal, right? As soon as you name a thing, you have control over that thing. And that has been true of every culture throughout human history that they want to name, have names for things and have systems to explain where those things came from, true or false, that people then say, oh yeah, okay, I see what you're saying there. Well, I mean, it's, it's even more basic than that, right? I, and I remember this from when uh, a friend of mine's uh, little boy was told to go into the kitchen, he was quite young, and get the green bowl. But he goes into the kitchen, and there's all these bowls around, and some of them are light green, some of them are dark green. You know, suddenly it becomes important to have more and more refined language That's right, yeah. to understand yeah. what it is you're being told to do. So what's your plan? I'm going to shove a harpoon through its heart. We're in a print culture, right? First came the word. The mm. word is law, literally. And again, there's perfectly good reasons why images can't be trusted. Yeah. I mean, entire wars, battles were fought. You know, right. the iconoclast, the Byzantine yeah. Empire. I mean, images historically in our culture aren't trusted. The right. word is. And so we have to get past all of that. I, I mean, again, a generation ago, comics were considered junk. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
uh, movies were considered. And now it's there, the fastest growing sections of every bookstore. <laughs> well, genre movies specifically were considered junk. Like sure. Those are the kind of movies you went to see at the drive-in. Yeah. At but they showing. were also the ones that were the most critical, critical of current society. Well, well now, they, now genre of films are, are the number one, you know, selling films at the box office. Sure. The next Marvel movie comes out yeah. and it's breaking all kinds of records. So it's, it's so funny how genres become but the most popular things. Are they as critical of culture as they used to be? I don't think so. Well, probably not. Only, not only that, but I mean, again, genre is a category, right? Uh, they're subsets of literature. What's the function of literature? What's the function of story? Again, if we go back to that, then we say to ourselves, what are these these uh, genre films that are the most popular, what are they actually saying about the human condition? Right? right? Are they saying anything about the human condition or are they simply repackaging the tropes of the genre for people's consumption? And then you I mean, there's come a qualitative difference there that I think is important to note. And you're asking yourself, and the dear listener might be asking themselves, you know, what's it all for? Like, if your life is supposed to be um, something that you pursue, meaningful struggle, Right? What is the meaningful struggle that you select? All of us in here have, as part of our meaningful struggles, something to do with pop culture or junk culture or some other or thing. Or both. And we're brought back to it. Like Justin is feverishly drawing a spaceship right now. Almost right? done. Almost done. Almost done. Way to right? go, Justin. Right? The only man making an honest living right now. Right, yeah. <laughs> the rest of us are just talking about making a living. He's doing it right While now. While the real work is getting done. Right. But, right, you could... We have all these high-minded ideas, but in the end, it comes down to, did you draw your spaceship on time, Justin? Right? If you didn't show up, if you didn't do some work, then it is all just smoke and talk and complaints, right? So as much as a film might be viewed as, oh, that's, you know, that's a garbage piece of, like, rubber tentacle monster movie, someone still showed up and made that film and put their idea out to be reflected on. Well, I, right. like, I Love know it or that, hate it, feel something, I guess. See, and I know that movie Inside Out, right? Because yeah. I worked on it. I storyboarded it. Um, and uh, it's, I used to compare it to some of the other movies in that, in that same uh, five that I was talking about. I Are the Beast is beautifully shot. I mean, Mike Marshall knew exactly what he was doing. You look at some of the other films uh, in that set, and they look like an episode of Matlock compared to the way Mike shot uh, Eye of the Beast. So it's actually watchable from a technical standpoint. I was going to say that about the... Um, did you work on the Chucky movies? Any of the Chucky yeah, movies? Yeah, I, I worked on the two that were shot here. In okay, the yeah, so yeah. the one, uh, the cult of Chucky was the one that was shot at the public safety building down the street. At least they used the all exterior. the external shots. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, we sistered the uh, outside of the public safety building with uh, the Delta Marsh uh, location. Oh, okay. Uh, and so when yeah, I they, say they, sistered, just a tech, this is a technical yeah. term, we figured out a way to convince the audience that that building, the public safety building, if you look the opposite direction, is Delta Marsh. Well, well, they show, like, actually, I was going to maybe you know the answer to this. It seemed to me the most expensive shot in the entire film was the one where they, you see the public safety building in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, which means they kind of had to, like, remove all the external right. stuff. Yep. Um, but I felt that movie was actually very well shot. I really, it, yeah, it, you it know. it was. That was Mike Marshall again. Is I, it really? I, okay. I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I remember I now because we were all rolling around together, the director, Mike, and I, trying to figure out how to kill off various characters in the movie. <laughs> it's really a lot of fun making movies with Mike Marshall and with, uh, with the director, uh, Day, uh, Don Mancini. Okay, and then, and then they went ahead and uh, 
quote unquote rebooted franchise, even though I don't know that it really needed to be rebooted. No, was... the new one's a parallel. It's, oh, it's... it's yeah, but wh- the new why? one, as in the what the latest one that was in the can, or the one that's well, the one with Mark theaters. Hamill. That's Mark Hamill out, did right? the voice of Chucky yeah. in the new one. I listened to. Oh, I, haven't uh, seen, I haven't seen that. Is that yeah. on the, in the TV show? No, no, it's t- theaters. It came out in theaters. Okay. There is a TV show coming out. That's oh. from the people who make the original Chucky. People who had the rights to Chucky sold the rights to Chucky to be a film. So there's now two competing franchises oh, who great. both have the right to make. This Chucky's. is like the Thunder Agents. All That's over right, again. all over again. Um, I don't know. I, I just this is the kind of stuff that frustrates me, right? Because you know the goal should be to tell a good story. And it, that's not what the goal is here. Okay, but let's come back around to that. If the goal is just to tell a good story, you don't need millions of dollars. You what? can just, you can tell me a good story, Dan. Just tell me a good but story. But it's not going to be very exciting to listen to me tell a story unless Why there's not? great visuals to it. Because I'm not very good at that. Ah. See, my problem with the uh, people who complain about a movie or a TV series or whatever not being what they want it to be it was never intended to be what they think it should be. Yeah. Sure, and right. I, I've come to terms with the fact that The Phantom Menace is not, uh, you know, it, George Lucas is perfectly happy with the way that turned out, and he's the one who made the movie, so that's all that matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's that's one of the huge, you know, debates in, in nerd culture, but... Um, and say what you will about that film, he literally put his entire fortune and studio up as collateral. Yeah, 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 for sure. Like... And it paid bet off. The, literally bet the farm. Yeah, and this it, is it, not it was, unusual in the history of filmmaking yeah. either. Again, um, various producers and the directors have just basically said, "Damn the torpedoes, remortgage their house, whatever it took." Yeah. That level of dedication, that level of willingness, uh, acceptance of risk, I uh, I can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is why comics are kind of a nice middle ground. Well, because so, you can are, have so a, is working for other people. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah, sure. But skin in the game, skin yeah. in the game. Yeah. Now, you've never really had to do that. Well, I, I mean, I, this is a conscious choice, though. Yeah. I mean... Oh, wait, what do you mean by that? I mean, that he is... Can you guys As, talk about, you know, you all did your main hustle, and then your comics were your side hustle, then right. comics became the main hustle. Comics have been the main hustle for you almost your entire life. Well, yeah, your OG comics hustle. Sure, but yeah. again, I, I grew up and learned my craft in a time when, A, there wasn't that much product out there, and B, there wasn't that much competition. Again, I've talked to you about this before, Dan, but I'll restate it on the air now. Nobody took this stuff seriously 40, 50 years ago. It was junk fiction. It wasn't taken seriously. 20 years before, yeah, 20 years, 15 years before I was born, World War II was going on. There were more serious Issues. things to worry about yeah. than entertainment. Well, and we, Because of, we've lived in peace and relative stability and harmony in North American culture, we have the luxury of Darn. overdosing on entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that amuses yeah. us. Well, right. now that we have serious issues happening ah. at the same time that we're consuming this mass media. Well, this is a fascinating time to be alive, right? Yeah. Because we now live in a culture of overproduction, overconsumption, yeah. and we live in a time of relative stability. That can't continue. A hundred years ago in Winnipeg, people were really, really pissed off. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the idea of Yeah, dear listener, we've mentioned it before, but we're celebrating a hundred years of the general strike here yeah. in Winnipeg. And I heard you guys talking in an earlier episode about my idea for a yeah. book on the general yeah. strike. Sorry, right? I, didn't mean to I wasn't away. afraid if people are following along episode to episode. I wasn't afraid that somebody would steal the idea of a book on the general strike. I was afraid they'd get it wrong. Right. Yeah. The oh, important thing about okay. the general strike isn't that that uh, car 
that they turned over. Yeah, and set on know. fire every time yeah. they show it. Yeah. The important thing about the general strike, if we're going to learn anything about it to apply to today, is how pissed off people were and yeah. why they were so pissed off. There were a whole confluence of events. You know, there was a plague, a, f a flu, a great pandemic that w roared through the city a year before. There was the end of the second, uh, the First World War. The, I mean, lip working in the factories was a death trap. They were, there was no he workplace health and safety. Right. All of these issues and more, not to mention the Russian Revolution occurred two years You're before. Right. Yeah. This is predates Stalin, obviously, yeah. and the failure People had gone to a world war in the hopes of getting a better life at the other side of it and were given a life that was worse than well, they had before exactly, they went to war. Yeah, Exactly. And yeah. things were more expensive. Yeah. There was profiteering going on yeah. during the war when there was a form of wage controls enacted by law and suddenly, but no, no price control. So prices on things went up and the quality of goods went down because literally Canada dedicated itself, as did much of the empire, to the war effort. And you couldn't even... You couldn't even get groceries because the kids on the farm were gone fighting. Again, it's, it's difficult to visualize the level of commitment that had been made to the war effort, the First World right. War. It's going to kill us, man. It's just going to pick us off one by one. Justin, you've returned from the, I was gonna say the furthest finished. regions. I'm back. Yeah, High five and yeah. Good Woo. job. Way to work. Mm -hmm. Sent off? Sent off. I love wow. that. He, he threw his arms up in celebration. High five. <laughs> yeah. And then went a little bit beyond what was asked of me and added oh, some, uh, because I have all these great battle damage elements from yeah. other Sweet. battle Plus damage again. robots. So I added that on top of the ship. So you under promised and over delivered. One of those, yeah. That's always the best. Yeah. Yes, That's indeed. That's always the best. Now, um, uh, so let's let's bring this right back around to who's back at the table here. Why accept a job that is arguably very outside of your regular go-to? You've done two commissions, two things yeah. recently that are way outside your wheelhouse. I'd love for you to talk and about I think why that's true. It comes to what you were saying, Nick, that of getting a bit stagnant when you are just working on the one thing. I I was my only client. I didn't have any other outside factors other than like my own motivation and I find every once in a while when I take on other projects that force me to work a different way it kind of rekindles the fire of my own stuff so even just taking on I've taken on three commissions in the last couple months and I've noticed a difference in my own personal work because of taking right. those on yeah and of course that's another way of building your brand mm -hmm. right because if you're seen in other other areas than, say, the convention circuit yeah. and that sort of thing, then you're going to be uh, your net's going to be cast wider. Yeah. It's the same the thing with working for uh, for the major companies, right? Yeah, for sure. Again, I know loads of artists that went into work for Marvel or DC with uh, maybe not with the Express idea, but it's worked out for them such that. They no longer have to work for Marvel or DC anymore yeah, right. because their reputation is such. That all they have to do is commissions now. They don't mm -hmm. even have to do comics. Yeah. Their, their name and their quality of their work is such that they, uh, the work comes to them. And the deadlines are a lot less insane and the money is better. So, yeah, maybe he'll do commissions instead of work for the large corporations. I'm excited to see. Greg and I recently did a, um, a Netflix um, sponsored art book for Stranger Things. So we did artwork that And was by by we he means we're in it. We're it's in actually it. Yeah, published yeah. by no, Pretty Blood. Yeah. About this so on an earlier podcast. Yeah. So we signed a contract with Netflix and we're allowed to bring um, we're allowed to print two hundred copies. I reread the contract. Yeah, right, the other me day. Too. 
Um, so we're allowed to print 200 prints of the piece that we did for the Stranger Things art book. You put the Netflix logo on But on the on bottom, there. yeah, we yeah. get to put like a copyright Netflix thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm excited to go to like the New York Comic Con and have that at my table that I'm like a Netflix artist for this one piece and see what that does. Because I notice a lot of guys seem like they work for, I'm not sure how much involvement they have with Marvel or DC, but as soon as they've done anything... They get that logo up on their booth. Sure. Well, brand, and it, brand recognition, and it confers a level of credibility. I right? was just going to say, it's the credibility mm. yep. more than anything. Someone knows that there was an editorial process between you and the finished product. Then they know they can hire you for more and that you'll accept that yep. editorial process. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, yeah commit, that, that com- brand, your brand or... Netflix brand or the combination of the two resonates with your audience, right? Yeah. It's like Becky will now date you because you dated Sandra, and Sandra is a stand-up girl. So no, the, word, the word is just, out. Just like that, because Sandra is, is a stand-up girl. Um, wow, we just managed to reduce this to a horrible, misogynistic rant. Um, we were being so high-minded for such a long period I gotta of time. Bring it down to earth, or we'll, we'll lose. We'll lose listeners. What is the thing you wish? that people w- that you see at conventions now who want to get into comics, what is the thing you wish they would know sooner? Oh, geez. Well, if I wanted to be really heretical about it, I would say don't go to comics conventions. If you really want to make a go of it, start hanging out your shingle in terms of working for something like uh, video games, um, you know, animation, Something that actually pays a lot better for the amount of work you're going to have to do. Oh, so your advice here is like get a stable or a more stable job than An comics. industry job. If you can do it. Yeah. I mean, again, it, uh, it's important to remember that comics started out as the, the field you went into when you couldn't get work higher, higher up in the, in the food yeah, chain, right? right? There yeah. was a hierarchy to illustration back in the day. Yeah. And so essentially comics was learn and earn. You started out apprenticing, you know, you started out, uh, you know, doing something like I did within the, the, the field. I started out as a colorist for George Freeman on some of his Marvel books and other work and worked my way up from there. Again, apprenticing doesn't exist anymore either, right. Right? but it used to be how you learned how to do comics. And um, so without that apprentice system, you're, you're hanging out your shingle somehow in the hope that somebody will see value in the work that you're doing and give you a shot. But it's getting tougher and tougher with all the competition. Mm-hmm. When I was starting out, nobody took this business seriously. I mean, I can't stress it enough. Right. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a, literally another world, a world where you know, entertainment TV didn't exist, where the entertainment section of the newspaper didn't choke a horse. It was a few column inches. Right. Um, even sports was the same thing. Sports was something you did on, recreationally. Now it's at this massive it's industry. Business, it's got yeah. its own. It's got its own series of networks dedicated to it. Right. If all you want to do is watch sports, all you want to do is see science fiction movies. There, there's you can literally do it yeah, all day every day. You can day, be in yeah. your little fanboy bubble day yeah. and night, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> not a good thing. Yeah. I am the heretic. Yeah. No, I don't think that's a good thing. Wow. Okay, well, this has been an excellent episode, I think, of Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We've ranged all over, but uh, thanks for coming, Nick. You have given us an excellent education. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, join the fight and make comments. <laughs>